So as usual, we'll take the first few minutes in sitting silently and settling our mind and body. Maybe coming home to the breath and tuning one's attention, awareness to the natural rhythm of the breath, together with sensations associated with it. On the whole, bringing the mind home and be close to the body by focusing on the In being with the breath, try to be with the breath alertly, attentively, delightfully.
So before we move into the actual sharing, let's uh, in preparation for seeing the homage to Shakyamuni Buddha, cultivate a merit field, Buddha Shakyamuni, in the space above oneself, radiant with smile, compassion, particularly think of his inner qualities, fine inner qualities, of love, compassion, wisdom, and all of the perfections, having reached full culmination. In thinking of his qualities, particularly inner mental qualities, try to flex one's imagination in what it would be like to have infinite love, compassion, unerring, comprehensive wisdom, and all the other qualities that have reached full, consummate, blossoming. Try to take support from its teachings, the depth, the profundity, the vastness, the diversity of the teachings, which represents the kind of mentality, the mental growth that he has. Think of all the disciples of this. Buddha, longing to different traditions that came out of him, all the disciples who have made great strides in their practice, many of them having reached full state of awakening, and those who have reached full awakening. There are those who are known famously, popularly among us, and there are many who are not. But nonetheless, have made the full state of full awakening, generating bodhicitta, the wisdom of understanding emptiness, subtle dependent origination, and all the practices that they undertook. Let this all contribute in generating a very strong sense of reverence and admiration towards the Buddha. Think of fellow sentient beings surrounding us, all of them in human form, so that we could conveniently take them in in the visualizations yet at the same time undergoing their own respective sufferings, both general in samsara as well as particular to their type of birth or stage of transition. Thinking of those, relate with them, empathize with them, 
from one's own experiences and from one's imagination of what they would, what their conditions might be like. And with this reflection, relate with them with a sense of empathy, growing into a sense of compassion that in turn growing into full bloom bodhicitta. Conjoined with the wisdom of understanding emptiness. Thereby seeing the root of the sufferings, how that is amenable to change, yet at the same time how far each and every sentient being is from realizing it in the first place, and then completely internalizing it. With these visualizations in place, let's say the homage to Shakyamuni Buddha, imagining that one is leading the congregation, all the sentient beings in human form joining us in this. Let's stay for a while in this mental mode of bodhicitta that we have just generated. Aspiring to attain full state of awakening, backed by an understanding that yes, it is possible in general, and more particularly possible in being generated in one's own battle continuum. And that too, for the sake of all sentient beings. Remembering the rationale behind this, how benefiting others in the fullest possible way is possible only when one has reached full awakening. And in particular, think of the great fortune and freedom that we have in making the most of this precious yet rare human rebirth, complete with almost all of the freedoms and fortune spoken of in the scriptures for undertaking a very robust, productive, reaching Dharma practice. And that too, in particular, in the light of our Unfailingly recognizing 
afflictions to be the main culprit, the main obstacles to overcome on this path. In this regard, we recognize afflictions within us when they arise, or at the very least, we know what they feel like, how destructive they are, how unfounded they are in their reasonings, in their stories, in their promise. So we not only recognize afflictions for afflictions, perceive them as something to put our blame on for all of our predicaments, all of our sufferings. We have come to recognize afflictions as something to be averted, not embraced. Yet at the same time, realistically, accepting and admitting that they are hard to overcome. They have a very strong grip on us. And we also know the reason behind this. And particularly, seeing our own habitual patterns before we met with the Dharma. And even after that, how the residues of them are still strong, going strong within us. Yet at the same time, through our reflections, as well as through our studies, teachings that we have heard, we have somewhat come to know what lies at the root of these afflictions, namely ignorance, that too, not just a naive ignorance of no knowing, but rather a deliberate misconstruing of the reality, and how we can see the connection between that and the afflictions. Afflictions invariably are embedded in this misconception. And how, through our reflections, sharings, deliberations, exchanges, teachings that we have heard, and from our meditations, we have come to see, see through this affliction, this ignorance, and how what it conceives is totally the opposition to the reality. Thus we see that, yes, freedom from the afflictions is possible because the root of it can be overcome because it is not in line with reality. Thus it cannot just be exposed but also be undermined, weakened and eventually completely replaced by a proper understanding of the reality. So not just freedom from afflictions, together with its subtlest stains, is possible in general, 
but it is possible provided we make efforts to be brought about in our own mental continuum. Thus, it's high time that we realize the preciousness of this opportunity, make the most of it, particularly on the basis of a general understanding of the roadmap as such. From here to full awakening. Based on that, making one's practices very vibrant, strong, rooted, from wherever one may be. And yes, the best way of making full use of this opportunity would be to aim at full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. And that's determined, become full determined to make the most use of this precious human birth in general, more particularly this very moment of sharing, reflecting on the Dharma, so that it may contribute towards us, that noble goal of full awakening, achieving full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. So, in general, there is understanding, or some there is an understanding. There is a saying that Buddha has taught many entry points to the Dharma. Some count around a hundred, or maybe even more than that. So there can be so many entry points to the Dharma points where that resonates with individual people, yet at the same time leading to the Dharma. So one point, one entry point that I see is by seeing the entirety of Buddha's teaching as a way, directly, indirectly, to address the afflictions. Because afflictions either the afflictions themselves, or something about the afflictions, be that the cause of them, the results of them, the impacts of them, the imprints of them, those are the ones which are the culprit, which are the main obstacles to our full awakening. And I see this way of approach very universal and very appealing and very reasonable. 
without having to give in to any kind of belief or faith or whatnot. The reality of afflictions is here and now. And then from there we can infer what the outcome will be, what the effects will be, what the impacts will be, what it, how it comes, like that, and what are its limit, limitations, limiting impacts on us, its constraints that it imposes on us in our prospect of realizing the full potential of our, ourselves how it is a stumbling block in really realizing the best that we can offer, that we can come up with. And likewise, it's the same case with others and our relationships with others. In a way, we can say the full awakening is dependent on Eliminating not just the afflictions, but the subtle traces of it, the bhakjas of it, the, the subtle instincts of them. Unless and until we eliminate them, there is no way to attain full awakening. But before that, there is the possibility of uprooting the afflictions making them completely irreversible, to abandon them completely irreversibly, so that they cannot, no matter what circumstances we come upon, they cannot be generated at all. And that's that state of being is called liberation. There are two afflictions are the culprit that keeps us from that. And then even even before that, afflictions, unless and until we undermine them, make them weak, whatnot, they can assert their their presence, their force, their promise upon us, and thus trigger us into so many negative actions of body, speech, and mind. Those are the those are the karmic causes, karmic actions that lead to lower rebirth in the meantime. But then, before that, also, even in this very life here and now. Under the influence of the afflictions, we ruin our, ruin our relationships, our own prospects of joy and happiness, here and now. So in all of these, afflictions are to blame. And afflictions do not come by, by themselves, but they are. They are because of the causes and conditions leading to them. And of the main cause is the ignorance. 
and looking at the ignorance itself, which is the cause of the afflictions, or the motive of the afflictions, although the ignorance in one way, in one way of categorizing is itself included among the afflictions. But what makes it stand out is all the rest of the afflictions that we can identify with in general as, a, as afflictions such as anger, jealousy, greed, which has taken on this very specific form, distinct, discrete form of their own, with their nature of destructiveness in, in whatever sly way or obvious way or whatever. From among them, ignorance stands out in that it permeates all the afflictions, irrespective. Whereas in the case of individual afflictions like anger, hatred, jealousy, greed, attack, attachment, etc., they kind of maintain their own distinct, discrete nature, and they do not, they do not, if you will, permeate each other. They do not overlap. But this, this ignorance that underlies, that underpins all of the afflictions, kind of pervades them. And it serves as the main lifeline for giving life, strength, force to the afflictions. So in terms of the cause of the afflictions also, not only they lead to the afflictions, but the the ignorance itself, it's, itself is very constraining in that it completely keeps us from seeing the reality as it is. And thus, from the get-go, we are completely deceived by it. And what prospects can we expect from it, then be deceived further, deeper. And it's very obvious in what it leads to. So in all of these afflictions, are to blame one way or the other, and thus they kind of stand in the way or prospects of any level of happiness. So this perspective of Buddhism is very practical and very universal. And that's something that could be shared among all. In a way, in a way without having to contradict with any of their individual religions' basic premises. And not only that, the very fact that all of them teach love, compassion, etc., it's a great boost and it's a great uh, way of uh, accommodating this way of looking at our predicament, our common predicament, and seeing a way out. So that's that's the reason why I use this for our reflection and cultivation of motivation this night. That said, we have some work to do. <laughs> we have some uh, Yeah, some motion to push through. So where did we leave last time? Is it on page? 
25 or 26? Okay, the last, very last, is it? Which paragraph is it? Is it one starting with understanding? Or maybe so. Let's, okay. We will find out. So let's look at page 285, paragraph from the bottom, starting with understanding that samsara and nirvana are of one taste, contracts the grasping that binds us to samsara. And how is that? One obvious way is when we see, when we understand them to be of one taste, we understand them of one taste in the light of their being lacking inherent existence. And that is uh, in the light of uh, realizing their ultimate reality. And that itself uh, contracts grasping that binds us to samsara because grasping to samsara or our bondage to samsara is because of the afflictions and the afflictions in turn are primarily responsible uh, or, or they, are, they are primarily generated by the ignorance and that ignorance is uh, counteracted by this understanding of the ultimate nature the shared ultimate nature of just about everything including samsara and nirvana so that's one obvious way. Another way is by not getting stuck in the feeling that samsara and nirvana, they are given entities that have no way of changing. Because when we see them in the light of being inherently existent, that means they are there by their own power of being, being and thus no power whatsoever can ever affect or, or change them. And thus, this means if somebody has made or made to, or they are in samsara, some, uh, in nirvana, they are there, there for all the time, and those who are stuck in samsara are stuck there without any prospect of any change. Whereas when we begin to see samsara in nirvana of one taste in the light of being in the light of sharing equally uh, in this nature of being thoroughly, through and through, dependently originated, with not the slightest iota of any kind of intrinsic identity, Then we begin to see, yes, samsara and nirvana are as relative and dependently relatedly established things, not something intrinsically given in their own specific concrete ways. So those are the ways by which understanding the sameness of samsara and nirvana. Not that samsara and nirvana are same in general or all on all fronts, but luckily in this very fundamental ultimate nature, they share the same same 
same level of existence, mode of existence. Seeing both of them as empty of true existence, we become confident that however many faults samsara has, they can all be eliminated. And particularly in the light of seeing the connection between the ignorance that completely misconstrues the misconstrues the ultimate nature of reality and the afflictions. When we see the connection between them, then which which amounts to seeing them as empty of true existence, then we begin to see how the very foundation of the afflictions is not stable. It has been made stable by our habituation, by our cowtoying, right? Cowtoying to the ignorance and to the afflictions. Not because of any other reason. And thus there's this possibility of there's this possibility of bringing a jolt to that kind of stability. It is in the Aryadeva's Pohandit where he says, in this, in this respect of how everything without exception share, shares in this ultimate fundamental nature of being thoroughly dependently related, thus lacking any iota of any intrinsic identity, intrinsic existence. The mere, not, not, not fully understanding it, even though one may be far from fully understanding it, fully making sense of it, fully accommodating it, yet a slight curiosity towards that, even a doubt towards that, wondering towards that, would mean shaking the very foundation of samsara. Unless we question that, it kind of stays grounded, rooted. But once we question it, it has no other way but to feel the threat because of its unfounded foundation, baseless foundation. But it's not just enough to say this. One has to really make effort, how much hard it may be, one must really make effort in really understanding this ultimate nature of reality in the form of what we call emptiness of inherent existence or the subtlest interdependent nature. Because this part of the practice is something that cannot be compensated by any other means such as prayer. Oh yeah, let me look at the list. His Holiness really doubles down on this by coming up with a list saying, this will not have, this will not have, this will not have. So one of, in the list, the first one comes prayer. Merely praying that may I understand emptiness is never going to be enough. Yes, you have come to know the Tibetan Buddhist custom of flapping in particular way, which means dispelling the obstacles. <laughs> Say, ignorance, you go, you go, you go. 
it will not it will not budge. It will just have a one time. Ha 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 ha! That's the way they want to displace me. No way. <laughs> in Tibetan, in Tibetan Buddhist culture, particularly around Losar, before Losar sets in as a way of closing the old year, we undertake major rituals, even at the government level, burning ritual cakes, huge, with what do you call, so many masks, but no matter how many of those we do, we call that Torja, Torja, ritual, huge rituals. That's not going to shake the ignorance. Chulgor Chuba, Yantra. There are certain, and this you do not see in the sutras as much, but in once we enter into Vajrayana practices, there are these different me, me, uh, measures. Of course, by themselves are not considered to be enough, but people tend to take them to be enough and not do their part of cultivating them. <laughs> but they can only be powerful when they are, what do you call, accompanied by very strong concentration practice and uh, appropriate cultivations. So yantras are not going to have help chinsek. Chinsek is fire puja. <laughs> Big fire puja. And said, you go in, you go in. Ignorance, you go in, you gone. The next day, it will not have gone. It will be there, even, it could be even stronger. By having done the ritual, you're seeing it, the ritual as really intrinsically powerful. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, all these things, other things that one does, only only helps in cementing the ignorance. <laughs> so yeah, in this regard, there's no other means but to really internalize this wisdom, understanding, emptiness within us. And in the scriptures, and you maybe you have noticed this. Mm-hmm. I think in Tsongkhapa's there are a group of Tsongkhapa's compositions which are pithy, uh, almost recitable compositions, such as something called uh, Is Destiny Fulfilled? That's a weird translation. With Destiny Fulfilled, maybe partly because I myself don't understand what is being said there. But what it is saying, Tokju Dunlegma. This is his biography, but biography drawing mainly on his uh, process of study. This is one of the biographies, oh, no, no, autobiographies, where he particularly draws on his, his process of study. In a way, that kind of lays out how one should pursue studies. So, so recalling them, he add a, he adds a refrain after every stanza, saying, "Thinking of this, the prospect ahead looks bright. Thinking of this, the prospect ahead looks bright. Thinking of this, 
destiny is fulfilled, it sustains. <laughs> Thinking of this, the prospect ahead is bright. And I have done this. The preceding teach masters have done this, and they have follower in me. I have also done this, like that. So there, uh, Tsongkhapa particularly makes very clear that in terms of pursuing the understanding of emptiness, if one is a beginner, then the only way to go about is by first understanding it intellectually. First get it in the head. And then, yes, think of then bringing it down slowly and slowly into the heart. But if one has understanding of it and involvement with it, engagement with it, with very, very strong uh, habituation, a very strong uh, involvement from past lives, then yes, one, one could just quickly go through intellectual understanding of it and then land on an experiential engagement with it. But other, other than that, the only way to do that. So he very clearly mentions that. And so that is also very evident in what His Holiness was saying, that yes, all of these means that we resort to, so long as they are not accompanied by an understanding, actual understanding of the emptiness, none of that is not going to even, none of that is even going to slightly push the ignorance, <laughs> let alone completely do it. Because first one has to gain here, because this is about first understanding it, and then eventually internalizing. Internalizing in the sense of really making a full understanding of it, in that it, that one is able to uh, accommodate it harmoniously with the reality, and thus see it completely mapping the reality, right? So usually we say, among the two things, understanding emptiness and bodhicitta, as, as important as they both are, and eventually they have to be brought together and complement each other for one to really move along the path, like in the case of, like, like that of a, two wings, two strong, healthy wings of a bird that can then traverse great distance by flying. Likewise, on the path to proceed, particularly on the path to fully awakening, bodhicitta and the understanding of emptiness, are the wisdom of understanding emptiness, are like the two wings. But in terms of how to approach them, what they are like, they, they, they are very different in nature. Emptiness is hard to understand. Hard to, hard to understand, hard to chew, hard to digest. But once you have understood it, you've got it in your grip. Yes, then it, it's very hard to lose it. And, and once you have understood it on one particular topic, one particular base, basis, then you just have to apply it to all others. There's no, even no need of kind of going to each and every object, each and every topic, one by one. 
So that's the reason why there is this expression. When it comes to the ultimate nature of reality, in this light of being thoroughly empty of inherent existence, thus being completely, thoroughly, true and through, being dependently related, and nothing but that. In terms of in terms of that nature of thing, it is the same as in everything. The one the nature of that in one in one object on one basis can be totally fully applicable to every phenomenon. So that's why it's just a mere it's just a matter of merely wondering what this is this like and there's no need of any extra wisdom, any extra valid cognition that needs to be mediated between this understanding of the next with and and the previous understanding on a other other topic. So it's hard to understand hard to really hard to understand in the sense of really making full sense of it so that it does not contradict the reality. And one comes about, comes to a full, what do you call, full realization of it, although realization is not the word, it's not enough. And it really maps squarely on the reality. Yet at the same time, have this effect of striking at the heart of the root of these afflictions. Now, when we look at bodhicitta, when we explain it, it's not that difficult to understand. But what is difficult is to cultivate it. Cultivating it takes much, much longer. I think compared with the wisdom, understanding, emptiness, if we put our effort towards that and that of bodhicitta, if we were to put equal effort, I think it will take much, much longer for bodhicitta to be generated. But in terms of making sense of it, it's very easy. But in terms of cultivating it, bringing it forth within one's heart, it's very difficult. But nonetheless, no, both of them, None of them have any substitutes. They have to be worked on uh, individually and collaboratively. Yeah, so this understanding of the ultimate nature of reality is something that cannot be left on the cannot be left on the side. It has to be as diligently approached and kind of, uh, yeah, as diligently approached and thought through. So, Yes, seeing both of them as empty of true existence, we become confident that 
however many faults samsara has, they can all be eliminated. So yeah, but this 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 has to really click within us by seeing the reality of the ignorance within us, by seeing the reality of the connection between the ignorance and the afflictions, and seeing how ignorant the other afflictions are totally, totally dependent for their life force, for their vitality, for their energy, for their strength, for their stamina, on this ignorance. That has to be understood very clearly and very uh, without any hesitation. And then it will dawn on us that, yes, afflictions, no matter how strong they are, they can be eliminated. And thus, one will begin to have a glimpse of the end of the tunnel for the first time. Otherwise, it will keep like going, 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 going. I remember very clearly when we were going on tour, the first few months would be like that, going into the tunnel, not seeing the end of it, going, going, going. Because maybe the organizers would not have decided when the tour will end. <laughs> and they're still looking for programs to come. So they wouldn't have that information at hand. And uh, yeah, we would feel like just going, going without end. And then when they will decide, yes, this is when you're living, oh, we can just see your life there. And the whole, whole dynamics changes. One begins to beam. <laughs> Even while one is just all by oneself. Because the tour is going to end. Each moment, however you pass, is it's getting you closer and closer. <laughs> so likewise, one will begin to see this. Otherwise, no, no, no matter how much we succeed in all other parts of the practice, it's just like not seeing the light of the tunnel and not approaching closer to it. And all of our recitations after lunch, they all kind of bring home that message. So this is so important. Uh, we cannot stress this more, and particularly having attained this precious human birth, just as bodhicitta is important. Likewise, this wisdom, understanding, emptiness is so important, if not more important. if not more important, which it may be, because, because in the analogies, even to reflect the relationship between the wisdom of understanding emptiness or the perfection of wisdom in relation to all the other perfections, it's like all the others are almost like visually impaired fellows of yourself, of which one self is the only one with I. And to be able to go to where you want it, one has to totally depend on someone with eye, eyesight. And without that, one will be just going round, 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 even with bodhisattva. Yeah, even for virtues, 
with few exceptions i will not explain what what <laughs> exceptions are and some of you already many of you already know <laughs> but with with very few exceptions all the virtues that we accumulate for them to really contribute to our eventual contribute in the sense of really really go into that deposit <laughs> that 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 pays for achieving full awakening of course it has to be it has to be touched by bodhicitta but at the same time it has to be complemented with this wisdom of understanding emptiness otherwise a major factor in that will be lacking so yeah this cannot be emphasized more and his holiness does this in one of the ways by listing these things and saying none of this is going to come close to even even just jolting jostling jolting the kind of shift shift moving slightly and the ignorance okay yeah and the way to understand it fully there are several uh, in what do you call several um, clues several tips if you will several tips that his holiness the Dalai Lama throws here and there one way to prepare for that to approach that to prepare for that is to first make very sure that things are dependently related of course one cannot do that in terms of the subtlest dependent origination yet of course to a certain extent one can how things are imputed in the sense of how things are not findable from their side if we were to approach them even on a conventional level they are not findable both conventionally as well as ultimately conventionally in the sense that unless and until we are content with this being the singing ball from here if we insist on really finding the singing ball in some in in it somewhere in it and we may not find although that way of searching for it it is searching for it conventionally not ultimately so no matter either you approach ultimately pursue it conventionally or ultimately in both ways it's not findable so it is not findable there it says that it does exist because when i hit it it makes sound and it takes some space it asserts its existence very strongly one way or the other but nonetheless so intriguingly it cannot be found the moment the moment you begin to search in it if you cannot find it in it where else can you find but it is not findable even conventionally that speaks of say speaks volumes about how it might be existing at the very least even if we do not bring the mind part of it which is little difficult for many particularly the scientists to bring mind part into it in the first place what is mind in relation to brain or body it's not that clear right and then to make a special case of mind being distinct in really having a big impact on how things exist is far fetched but at the very least 
by saying that yes, there is a single ball, I see it, and 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 we see it very differently. I, I look at like at it look from here like this. I see it differently. I look at it from here. It I see it differently, and, and an insect comes, looks at it, sees it very differently. It's like the whole sky is a big singing ball. <laughs> and when it goes into it, it's oh. I might fall in it. Once it fa falls in it, it cannot get out of it. <laughs> Nonetheless, it is not mistaken in seeing whatever it sees. It's not mistaken. Of course, among the insects, there can be, we can make a case of some insects are mistaken, some are not, within their insect context, insect world context. But uh, we cannot say every insect is mistaken in seeing what it sees in relation to it. They are valid in there. So the validity part of that is also contextual. This is quite interesting, right? So, so nonetheless, although it's there for sure, yes, it is there, definitely there, and you bang against it, it will fall. But nonetheless, the moment you begin to search, not being content with the mere, almost like a mere, mere. Uh, what do you call lose identity of it, identification of it? The moment you begin to what do you call verify it even further beyond the conventional, beyond the mere functionality of it, if everyone perceives it, then one doesn't find it. And so, just at that point, if you reflect on what is it, where is it, how how does it exist, it kind of begins to give us a, some kind of ethereal sense of it. It's not in any of these parts, but it is there as a whole. And that wholeness is just fully, totally contingent on the parts, on the parts, and that too, differently on the parts in different ways. So just given that it exists, yet not in that way of being found, on it, in it, let alone, I mean, not speaking of seeing it, finding it somewhere else, but on it, in it, where it should be, if it is findable. And that's a clear indication it's not findable because you cannot find it there. Yet it exists. It gives us a sense of its being there, but quite not, quite not there, or there in a very ethereal sense, flimsy sense. So, his Holiness suggests that, yes, before we throw ourselves fully into understanding its empty inherent existence, first make sure, very clearly make sure, without doubt, that it exists, that it functions, that it operates. So that after you really look into the ultimate nature of it, and you begin to find that it doesn't have any inherent existence, you will not have to question whether it exists or not. The existing part is well established. And then when you pursue it and you match it with, 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 with the reality of its existence, then the combination can give you some more fuller picture of its actual existence. So in terms of, uh, in terms of seeing its dependent nature, uh, one could also bring the dependence in the subtlest nature, uh, not just on the causal nature in the chronological order, in the temporal sense, 
it's being cause dependent on cause, but also because when when we ascertain is dependent on cause, it's like saying yes, it comes from a previous cause, but in terms of itself, it's there. And then likewise, it, this becomes a little fuzzy when you question its relationship with the when you look at it and in relation to its parts, because now you are speaking of its dependence on something that is in the real time together with it, not chronological. So that really questions uh, the the way it exists, uh, and so, so that kind of brings us closer to seeing the flimsy nature of it, construct nature of it, but not quite fully in the most subtlest, because because not doesn't necessarily really come to bring us to its contingence, contingency, nature, on its basis of imputation and the imputing mind. It only shows its dependence on the parts. Apart from the parts, there is no whole. So you bring that dependency or that, that relatedness, that dependency, first from the temporal sense of depending on a preceding thing to depending on its own parts here and now while it exists, uh, with which it shares one entity, nature. Whereas with a cause, it will be a different nature, different entity. And then even push further in seeing how it is dependent on 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 on, on a projecting mind, without without it conflicting with its uh, with its functionality, with its operationality, with its conventional reality. And and uh, and but not but but until and unless one has fully negated uh, the the objective reality of inherent existence on it. There's no way to fully understand the dependent origination in this subtlest form. Because it is something to dawn afterwards. But nonetheless, even while preparing for it, you could explore that and see to what extent you can push its reality. So that's what His Holiness suggests. Uh, in way of preparing for it, first really fully make sure who was this 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 Western philosopher Descartes, right? Was it Descartes? Yeah, who questioned everything, and he said, "I am, I th- I think therefore I am." <laughs> All the rest he could rule out, question oh, they may or may not exist. But what about this guy? This guy is thinking. <laughs> so therefore, and then he starts from there and saying, yes, others may exist. Yeah, but then the but then in terms of seeing whether one's one's understanding of that is is on track or not, is to see how 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 compatible is that? With the reality of its, its its existing conventionally, with the reality of its functionality, with the reality of its unique functionality that is not found in other things, with the reality of its individual identity, that it is an individual thing with its very distinct qualities, whatnot, 
pursuance of the understanding of emptiness should not conflict with that. In, if at all, it should even uh, accommodate that. It should even uh, affirm that, reinforce that. And thus be able to reaffirm its lack of, or reinforce or reaffirm, confirm its lack of inherent existence on the very basis that it is functional in the way it is by me, by sheer virtue of being contingent on others. Okay, so that, that, those will all come in this understanding of samsara and nirvana being equal. But just merely saying samsara and nirvana are equal in being lacking in alien existence is not enough. <laughs> okay. They can all be eliminated. So one important thing about emptiness is yes, it 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 is not contradictory with the with the actual reality of things. I I wanted to say conventional, but it is such a cliche that sometimes it doesn't make any sense. Right? It's just almost like. Uh, looking for a excuse for saying saying it for the sake of saying it but what does conventional reality means it's 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 being actual it's being real but real only dependently so not independently in and of itself but dependently so but nonetheless very real very functional uh, so that part is very important, and yeah, it, I think it will come up here, and then it will bring set up something that I wanted to. Okay, so then we are uh, okay. Yeah, I thought we will go. <laughs> I thought this was a very short paragraph. We could just. And all the excellent qualities of nirvana can be actualized. Be the reason why all the excellent qualities of nirvana can be actualized is because the very stumbling block, the, the obstacle in the way of realizing nirvana would have been undermined and would have been, would have been made possible to be overcome by understanding emptiness. So it lies in this understanding of emptiness for one to realize the reality of nirvana and full awakening. So the all excellent qualities of nirvana are totally dependent on whether or not one succeeds in identifying this ignorance for what it is and being able to really see through it and undermine it and weaken it and then eventually completely uh, uproot it. It's a matter of stopping the causes for samsara and creating the cause matter to attain nirvana. So, in a way, samsara and nirvana are right here. <laughs> it really depends. It, the very initial signal to parting ways 
with samsara and befriending with nirvana is i mean when we speak of just nirvana not enlightenment then yes the key really lies in this in this wisdom and understanding emptiness so strongly so Saying samsara and nirvana equal does not mean that being in samsara is the same as being in nirvana, or that we need not try to cease samsara and attain nirvana because they are already equal and we are so, so inextricably steeped in samsara. That means we are inextricably steeped in nirvana. <laughs> Sometimes we even say, oh, there's no, there's no, that's not a big deal because everything is empty. <laughs> so you're creating emptiness with really nothingness. <laughs> and His Holiness says that, that is a, in Tibetan terms, it's, that is a Golok Chembo. That is a big mistake. I think in, in, in actual translation, it makes it 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 means even stronger than that. Yeah. Sometimes we say, "Oh, what can we do?" It's karma. Like uh, almost, it is like predestined thing. Likewise, we say, "Oh, doesn't matter. Everything's empty." Right? That's that's completely getting it wrong. And that kind of a, a, a mentality we should not fall into, <laughs> because that's almost like that's all, almost like uh, in the scriptures it's it specifically singles out two types of beings for whom the teaching on emptiness can be can be halted, can be postponed for a while. One is who has no interest whatsoever in emptiness and completely uh, kind of trashes it. So that's like, they themselves are completely uh, turning back to it. There's another one who says, oh, yes, emptiness. So what is the, the moment I hear emptiness, I'm really relieved. And I feel so drawn close to it. Because when you speak of emptiness, then my my debts, payments, they also are empty, so I do not have to pay them. <laughs> so likewise, and they may be applying it to something and equa equating with nothingness. And then particularly applying, applying to their, thinking of their, in, rela in relation to their sufferings and whatnot. Say, oh, they are empty, they are empty, empty. So with some some amount of faith in it and some sense of kind of really making sense of it, resonating with it, whereas in actuality one is really going off kilter and giving some sense of relief, which is understandable when you are equating with nothingness, to, with that gusto of kind of really going with it. But uh, in actuality, equating with nothingness, and thus undermining many other aspects of uh, 
spiritual practice and spiritual cultivation that one need to do. So that's another uh, category of people that 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 uh, that scriptures suggest to kind of proceed slowly with them. If not, if 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 not fully shutting them down, uh, one could proceed very cautiously in bringing the the aspect of conventional uh, reality, the dependency part of it, functionality part of it. Okay, so I think there are almost 10, 11 minutes. If people have any questions, you could ask. Yes, please. So Singapore uh, Fosa asks, is Nirvana subjected to the power of change? I think I get, I get that question. Nirvana, by its very nature, is considered to be uncompounded. Uh, so that's not subject to that's not subject to change as as such. But at the same time, what we call compounded uh, and uncompounded and permanent. Uh, in a way, is subject to change. Subject to change in the sense that it ceases every moment. Not change into something else, but it ceases. The prior moment of nirvana is not the present moment of nirvana. So in that sense, it does cease moment by moment, but not change or transform or or de de uh, degenerate, all of that, none of that. Uh, but, so, that part of nirvana, if we are not speaking of nirvana as a state of freedom from the afflictions, but very specifically about the very state of it, the very nature of it, it, then we are getting into a different conversation in terms of the very nature of that state of freedom. And that state of freedom itself, itself is not generated itself is not produced by causes and conditions. But at the same time, it didn't arise in and of itself. There, was, there were efforts on the part of the person in tackling the afflictions with the, with the corresponding powerful uh, path, and thus the path tackling or yeah path that is the antidote to the afflictions tackling the afflictions renders them totally irreversible and that state of its having rendered is reversible which is almost like a byproduct that is to be very specific nirvana but in that so that very specific aspect of nirvana may be considered as uncompounded in nature and does not produce, but at the same time doesn't mean that nirvana is always there or it came of its own, it can go of its own. No, it, is, it has become a reality because of the efforts. So if we just in general think of nirvana as a state of freedom, then yes, it could be understood as a result of efforts. But if we kind of 
pinpoint the very very entity of of of, of that very particular state of you know then yes that points to then nirvana as a as a form of cessation uh, uh turns out to be a natural byproduct of that effort uh, through path entangling affliction yeah so the question the answer is yes and no both <laughs> but not yes and no because of one reason but yes in one reason no in another reason Yeah, that part I particularly remember. You, you remember I mentioned when I was in school the part about dharma, the part about what is actual dharma, which is the actual protection. It always puzzled me a lot. Partly it's because of this nirvana being uncompounded, and it's so abstract. I, it's so abstract that I don't get my hand on anything. But now when we see how the understanding of emptiness and the ignorance that completely misconstrues reality in the totally opposite light how they can be one to one complete exact antidote and counterforce to each other makes it possible that yes makes it makes it possible to imagine that yes with the a wisdom of understanding emptiness having the back backing backup backing backup support of the reality when they are when they confront each other there's no other way but for the ignorance to lose because of its having no rooting no grounding in reality and thus when they're pursued further that not only the ignorance but also all of the offshoots of it in terms of the afflictions have no choice but to lose the ground so then there will be time when one's mind steam would have been completely com- completely cleansed cleansed of the afflictions together with the ignorance having lost its grip on us that state of freedom that state of no that state of freedom new state that has dawned in terms of freedom uh that's that's like the nirvana any other questions if you have please so when they say that realizing is it easier to realize the emptiness of inherent existence of the person first although it says once you realize that the basis doesn't really matter is it still true that realizing the emptiness of inherent existence of a person is easier than emptiness of inherent existence of phenomena yes so from there yeah usually we say that although it's not a what do you call fast and fixed rule it will interview uh, depend on individuals but on the whole because of the nature of the basis either as a person or as a phenomena or as the aggregates because of the nature of the basis it makes it easier for one to approach the understanding 
of emptiness on the person first. Know it so well. Because uh, I would, I keep always wondering about this because I'm so involved in myself and it's so complex that I think to be able to recognize the emptiness of inherent existence of the singing bowl many times just seems to be, it's less complicated or something. I'm too involved in the aggregates and this person. I've always thought that this would be more challenging because I'm so attached to it. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, even in the scriptures also, it's a general rule. It's a, it's a rule of the thumb. <laughs> not a fast, fixed rule that everyone has to go through it. That's not needed. Uh, but at the same time, uh, how we make sense of this uh, relatively easier and harder way, and the harder uh, way to understand emptiness is the person Unlike the singing ball, the singing ball is a little difficult. You said singing ball may be a little easier, <laughs> but I want to challenge <laughs> because the person is abstract. By very nature, the person is neither the mind, nor the body, nor physical body, nor consciousness. It is something in between. By its very nature, it is abstract. But in the case of the singing ball and book and others, they are not I mean, I want to go there, I want to even see book as an abstract, but the book is, is a physical thing. The singing ball is a physical thing, but not the person. The person is not the body, neither a physical thing, nor the consciousness, neither is it any consciousness at all. It is something in between. So it, by its very nature, by its very uh, existence, it is, it is the moment we question it, we can kind of uh, see it's kind of uh, somewhere in between nature and and particularly it's abstract abstract nature so because of the it's abstract nature and not being able to locate not just not locate because that part will be applicable to everything else but on a very gross sense also it is neither the body nor the mind nor, and, and, and from that, not the collection of the body and mind, which is not that different from mind and body. It's very nature, it is abstract in nature. Because of that, that's approachable. Like of, it's of, of seeing it being, seeing it being, unless one identifies it with the body, with the mind, then when we link them together and say, this is about me, then yes, one is almost giving the same, yeah, yeah, nature as, as a singing wall or as a book. So in that case, then first one has to uh, kind of uh, tease apart. Yeah. The, but the person is, by its very nature, uh, kind of situated in that form, in that way. Sorry, to, I'm not exactly asking you to repeat what you said, but I have a difficulty with the things about nirvana. Mm -hmm. I get some of the ideas in the sense of nirvana is considered to be permanent from a certain perspective, I guess you would say. But that part that is considered to be permanent, is it an absence? Is it a, it's not a state of mind. Is it, is it like one of the things where a book is impermanent, but something being a book is permanent? <laughs> I see. Uh, Which, uh, what are the actual technical terms for the part 
that is permanent and how you might describe it as impermanent. I think that might help me. Uh, that's a little difficult. <laughs> but usually, you, you must have come across this, uh, this uh, analogy in washing clothes. Have you come across that? Right? So, yeah, all you do is you're rubbing it. And you do not, you, you do not necessarily work to get the free, the stains, the, the, the freedom of the, the, the freedom from the stains in the, that comes in the wake of it. You just deal with your afflictions, stains, and consumer it to how much force, effort, uh, and other things that you've done to that extent, the uh, level of afflictions will be gone. So in the wake of that, there is this absence of it, absence of the sin. That is nirvana. That's the reason why nirvana uh, is, is, is non-affirmative in nature. That's why in many of its, its, its uh, many of its, you could call epithets, where, different ways of calling it. One is, it is called cessation, it's called peace, and freedom from Freedom from yangde, freedom from, uh, freedom from, freedom from yang, yangye, freedom from. I always have this difficulty. This term yangen, and in English you, you always use nirvana, which is tarpa, but to not really convey this other aspect of the sensation yangde. Uh, but basically, it refers to predicaments. So, freedom from the predicaments. Kokwa Shiva. Yanum. Yanum. Yanum has a positive connotation, but it mainly draws on the, the benefits that come from it. It has this connotation of being splendid, splend with, with splendor. But splendor. Uh, because of its being freed from the afflictions, so it is an absence of of that of of the dirts that have been removed by through effort by the antidote. Appreciate the way you explain this. I can understand that, and I like the analogy because it will help me remember it. Mm -hmm. I want to just ask one other question because I've been wondering about this for a while, and I haven't really read about it. Um, but, okay, so I could say nirvana, I could safely say nirvana is like an absence of afflictions, mm -hmm. absence of the, these things you've removed. So you could say absence of afflictions from one's mind stream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But but do some people equate, how do you equate, or do you, is it proper, or are there just different viewpoints on equating nirvana with emptiness? I see, I see, I see. Yeah, we do not, uh, in a way, it, in a way, it really touches on a very profound aspect. Uh, because when you, uh, it's not quite e equal in, in, not, not the same, not the same. Uh, yeah, not, not the same. Uh, but at the same time, uh, 
Yeah, but at the same time, when they say cessation is um, is the ultimate reality, it has to do with the mechanism of how you how you purify the afflictions. You do this through the means of a wisdom that understands that that is totally focused on emptiness. And why emptiness works? Because the root of it, what, what, what holds afflictions from uh, getting off of us is because of the ignorance, the grief of it. So it's in the face of the ignorance that the wisdom of understanding kind of throws this reality of emptiness in it. So the, this purification happens in the within the sphere of, I don't have any better way of calling it, within the sphere of emptiness. And that's why that freedom takes on the form of uh, emptiness. So, because the, uh, in the ultimate, the main tool, to the only tool that really uh, ultimately matters is wisdom, but not just wisdom on anything, but wisdom understand emptiness. And it's almost like you have the emptiness at the tip of, of, of this tool. Now with this, you can really strike at the very heart of the afflictions. And thus the affliction itself gets dissolved, in, in a way gets resolved, dissolved or gets uh, freed uh, of us uh, within this force of emptiness. And thus we have a saying that it is dissolved or it is purified within the sphere of emptiness. And thus, that, purif- that state of purification takes on the form of, of emptiness. But, uh, but not everyone. Uh, it is not a universal statement. Uh, uh, even within the monastic yikchas, they differ. Yeah. You're welcome. Okay, we will stop here. Thank you.